Who were we before shame told us we weren't enough? I asked myself that question three years ago and I haven't stopped since. You see, shame tells us that we're alone in how we feel, that it doesn't matter what we think or say or believe. Every part of us that feels unfindable, unreachable, unseeable, unlovable has shame in it. And I believe so fervently that there is power in speaking to that shame. So join me as we reclaim the space that shame has taken up. Hello, you incredible, cherished, fantastic human being. I'm celebrating that you're here with me by drinking one of my favorite beverages, Dr. Pepper. Good old 23 flavored doctor never lets me down. Grab your own beverage if you can, grab a snack, get comfy, relax, tuck in while we chat. I was sure to put suicide in the title of today's episode because I didn't want anyone coming here unaware of the subject. If you are tuning in with thoughts or feelings around ending your life or thoughts of wanting a break, a rest from your life in a permanent way, please know you are not alone. Please know there is another option. Please know you are deserving of love and belonging and consideration. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 at 800-273-8255. My hope is that you reach out to a family member or a friend, a colleague. Reach out here. Let someone know that you're struggling, that you're aching, that you're carrying a heavy load. There is another option. I'm so glad you're here and I want you to stay. I also want to be clear that I am not a licensed professional. My thoughts and advice should only supplement and or support what clinically trained individuals share and teach. These opinions are a mix of my own experience along with reading and learning from qualified sources. The nature of shame is secretive. It's separating and isolating. Shame is the feeling that we need to hide ourselves or parts of ourselves, because they are in some way lacking, or embarrassing, or grotesque, different, that we're alone in having those parts. I would almost use that exact definition to explain why suicide isn't talked about more openly. It's shrouded in shame and guilt, sorrow and grief. It's thrown around like a curse word, and spoken of in whispered tones. We literally built an altar of shame and placed suicide on it. I mean, just think of the last time you heard someone talk about the time they were considering ending their life. Were they comfortable talking about it? Or even gentle with themselves while talking about it? What about you? If you've ever considered ending your life, are you talking about it with compassion or kindness to whomever you're sharing it with? I hope, I want, I wish. Let's start. We have not built a kind world in many ways. We have kind people all over, yes. But our world, our society and systems are one of go, go, go. It will be fine. Just keep going. But what is the cost of that? What is the cost of go, go, go? When the keeping going becomes too much, when the noise of the collective go, go, go has made our heads ache and our ears ring and our backs hurt, We seek rest. 
Maybe we seek rest because we've never stepped in line with all those around us who are go, go, going. Maybe we've spent the majority of our lives feeling like we're a step off, a beat behind, a step away from what everyone else calls living. We almost get it, but not quite. There are periods of life that are full of agony too. Maybe it's because we lost someone dear to us or a season that we loved ended and we are now aching in this new one, trying to find our place. Maybe we lost ourselves in this new season. We aren't comfortable or at home anymore and we want a break. While others are living and functioning around us, going, hustling, we're devoting our energy to surviving, to putting clothes on and intaking food. We're given shame from others too. Shame for our existence, our being, our interests and hobbies. We're tormented and belittled. We can't focus on any go, go, go because we're so preoccupied with finding a safe place to exist. These are just a few reasons why we as humans seek a rest in suicide. The weight of living becomes too much for whatever real, valid, impactful reason. I wonder what our conversation around suicide would sound like if we focused more on those things, uh, the reasons why we couldn't go, go, go. Would there be less shame, I wonder, around our choice to opt out of the hustle? I think so. I really do. I also think we're beginning to have these conversations. We were seeking and asking. We're starting to. But still, the shame of suicide is alive and well. That shame is stifling living, breathing human beings who are already going through devastating times. On top of that, they feel shamed and unsafe to share that they're experiencing these deep and impactful things. I want to speak to that shame today. Absolutely, that's what we do here. But more importantly, I want to speak to you. And I do so with heaps of thought and hope and grace and consideration. This topic is wrought with deep and personal emotions and experiences, history. Those are all yours to feel and validate, absolutely. Take what you need and leave what you don't from today's podcast episode. And my commitment to you is that I will continue to educate myself on this experience, on this incredibly personal, heartbreaking, valid experience that many people are going through. I'm going to give a number to just how many. Estimate, right? I don't think we can know for sure. But I'm asking that you take what you need and leave what you don't. And you can ask of me to stay educated. And if you know you've been impacted by suicide, you know. It's a weight, an ache, a sorrow, a loss, a question. If you've lost someone you love to suicide, I'm sorry. I am so truly, deeply sorry for your loss. For so long, I was someone that had the tremendous privilege of not understanding suicide. I hadn't had any up-close exposure to it, yet I still thought I understood it, right? I understood the shame that surrounded it is really what I understood. I understood the reverence, shame, in which we spoke of it, the hush-hush. I understood the quiet, subtle ways we judged those who chose suicide, their families, their lives. I understood the delineation between, quote, good people, unquote, who were impacted by mental health, loss, difficulties, heartache, bullying, but chose to live through it. 
and, quote, bad people, unquote, who were impacted by mental health, loss, difficulties, heartache, bullying, but chose another path. And I feel, you guys, I feel as I'm saying that, I feel the shame cloying at me because I know better now. I know how wrong it was to judge so harshly and be so cruel to those experiencing that devastation, all in the name of inexperience and shame, which doesn't excuse it, right? But we're here to speak to that shame. We're here to talk about it so that we can begin to give it less power. If you're feeling that shame come up, please stick with me. Come this way, away from the shame. Come in the direction of knowing better brings out doing better. Because going with the shame will only keep things in this cycle of whispered judgments and harsh comparisons. It wasn't until after I nearly ended my life that I realized just how much shame I had in my backpack regarding suicide. It wasn't until after I'd made a plan and almost all the choices that would end my life that I realized just how impossible it felt to talk about. It wasn't until after months of fixating on suicidal thoughts and ideations that I thought, okay, wait a minute. I maybe could talk about this. Maybe. I was 23 when I got pregnant with my first baby. I now know that my severe depression during pregnancy, antepartum depression or prenatal depression, I've heard it called both. It was not a, a typical pregnancy symptom or as typical, that's better to say, as typical as, say, morning sickness or fatigue. I now know that my dark thoughts of not wanting to make it through childbirth because I just wanted a break, a rest, were not typical thoughts. I now know that the sinking feelings I had just hours after my child's birth were not the same as the baby blues I had with my second child's birth. I now know that the nine months I spent fighting to exist after my baby was born were not just hormone fluctuations or the struggle of adjusting to new motherhood. I now know that the aching hollowness that just constantly lived in my chest I couldn't get rid of, where I wished love and adoration for my child existed, was not what other moms meant or most other moms meant when they said, I'm having a hard time. I know now, absolutely without a doubt, because I've spoken with them, I know now that so many women that I personally have in my life have had strikingly similar experiences. I now know that, but I didn't know it then. And I thought, what am I missing? Why is everybody else walking to this beat of motherhood being amazing and affirming? And I'm over here like, wait a minute, I don't even want to be alive anymore. What am I missing? That shame, it kept us so quiet. Because the, the antithesis to shame is connection. But I didn't know how to connect because I felt so ashamed of what I was feeling. I now know that the almost constant barrage of thoughts that sounded like, they're better off without me. I'm not the mother my baby deserves. I want to die for this to end, to have a rest, a break, a moment. We're not safe thoughts. 
Now, none of that, again, is to say that I'm the only woman who's experienced anti and postpartum depression, prenatal depression. None of that is to say that I didn't know moms either, right? Because I do. I know that now. I have that confirmed to me. But on top of all of these very dark and abundant surrounding feelings of wanting to end my life, of not being good enough, of feeling disconnected from almost everything and everyone was the shame that, oh my gosh, how are you feeling these things? You can't talk about this because you're not safe to talk about this because they'll judge you so harshly. You'll be deemed an unfit mother. People will look at at you and go, wow, really? You don't even have it that bad. The shame, the idea that I was the only person going through this is what kept me continually disconnected from the very real help that I could have accessed. According to the CDC, in 2019, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. More than 47,500 people died of suicide in 2019. And in that same year, in people aged 10 to 34, suicide was the second leading cause of death. And in ages 35 to 44, suicide was the fourth leading cause of death. In 2019, there were almost two and a half times as many deaths by suicide than there were deaths by homicide. 47,500 people. That is about the number of people that can fit in Yankee Stadium or Wrigley Field. But is it because they're staggered and spread out? Because we don't have to look at them all go at once? Is that why we don't get that number? I don't, I had a hard time conceptualizing that number. Even now. We don't get that loss until it's in our face, I think. Yet we're taught to shame it, to judge it. I want to talk about Dear Evan Hansen. So if you haven't seen the movie or the play and you want to, go forward knowing there will be spoilers or just skip this part. I would describe Evan as an incredibly shy teenager who has a lot of feelings. And throughout this whole story, he has a cast on his arm. Whenever he's asked about his arm and the cast, he says he fell out of a tree over the summer at his job. And it's not until almost the end, after so much has happened and come out and, you know, he's gone through this whole plot and it's been beautiful, that we learn Evan's arm is broken because he tried to end his life by jumping out of a tree. He landed on his arm, broke it, and lived. And you guys, like, the whole story is full to the brim of suicide awareness. There's... Like, that's the entire reason Evan is connected to the plot of the story. Someone else in his class died by suicide. So he joins a club talking about suicide and promoting the memories of his classmate. He shares an incredible speech about it. He's uh, like, he sings this incredible song about nobody being alone. He goes through an entire beautiful, vulnerable story talking about suicide. But still, the shame of what he felt that day was too much from my perspective. Even his body language when discussing that day reflects how embarrassed and how shamed he felt as he's telling his mom about the truth of what happened to his arm. How many ways 
can we say something without saying something? Because I know I said, I'm not getting any sleep when I was fixated on suicide. I'm so overwhelmed. How long does it last this way? Or how long, how long does this last? Evan talked a lot about being alone and wondering if anyone would notice his absence. I'm not suggesting at all that we treat every, uh, it's been a rough week or I'm having a hard time, like a bid for help. Please, no, I'm not doing that. Let's not make ourselves frantic and guilt-ridden and shame-ridden. But what if when our friends or family or ourselves, when we're checking in with ourselves, what if we spoke to each other when we did that, we put suicide as an option on the table? Like uh, like sickness is an op- option or exhaustion, burnout, loss, overwhelm. Like all of those are options when we're checking in with people we know, right? What about suicide? I think here, here's my hypothesis. I think we don't want to trivialize it. If I talk about suicide like I talk about the stomach bug I had last month, it takes away the seriousness of it. Wait, seriousness or substance? Because my kid, when they can't find their shoe, they come to me in all seriousness. Mom, my shoe, it's gone. I can't find it. Tears in their eyes, overwhelmed, feeling so defeated. That's so incredibly serious to them. And until we find it, we have very real and serious emotion. But substance. One of the definitions of substance is the quality of being important, valid, or significant. That feels like the kind of response that would foster connection to me. Hey, I'm really not in a good place. My thoughts have been dark. I don't feel very connected. I feel really numb. I feel really overwhelmed. That is so damn valid. That has significance. That's important. Studies show that talking about suicide lowers the rates of it. Because where shame isn't, connection is. And connection, doesn't that seem and feel like a reminder of living? Like, hey, If I stay, I could have more of this connection. This is helping. It's healing. The vulnerability it takes to express suicidal thoughts and ideations is brave. It's hard. It's big. I challenge us all to practice our validation skills now. So that in the future, when someone is bold and vulnerable and authentic, And says they're thinking about suicide or they're struggling with their thoughts of wanting to live, we can honor that authenticity with connection of our own. So, what can we do? Here are some of my non clinical, because remember, I'm not a therapist and this isn't a substitute for therapy or clinical expertise, but I've been through some of it, a lot of it. Here are some of my ideas. Let's talk about suicide. Remember, shame hates connection. So let's take some of the shame away by allowing ourselves to connect to others, even and especially when the topic is regarding suicide. 
And I would encourage you as much as possible to stay educated regarding suicide. Those statistics that I shared about suicide were found online at the CDC's website. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline has a website. They have some resources. There are therapists in your area that I know you could reach out to for resources, for ideas. Local hospitals have pamphlets on suicide. There are also professionals in the hospital who are there for mental health crises and support. So as much as you can, stay educated on the topic of suicide, on suicide prevention, on suicide help, so that the advice that you give or the space that you give to those individuals experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideations is effective and recommended advice. A really easy and quick thing that we can do is to have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline saved and accessible. So again, their number is 800-273-8255. They are also online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. The last tool I'll share was the most effective for me when I was suicidal. Understand the scale of suicidality. I learned in college about the scale, or you could think of it as a spectrum, in which to measure suicidality, or I've, I've heard it phrased before, how suicidal is someone? But I think the scale of suicidality is an even better way to discuss it, to, to say it, to think of it, because it really puts into perspective the viewpoints of those who have been on the scale, who have experienced points on the scale. It's so much more specific and educational than just saying how suicidal is someone. And again, this in no way trumps a medical professional or clinical helping professional therapist, counselor, psychiatrist's advice or tools, their expertise. This was just a tool that tremendously helped me. So that's why I'm sharing it. It helped me especially as I was describing my mental state to my husband. I would have never believed, seriously, that a class I took my sophomore year of college would be part of why my life was saved, why I kept living, because it gave me the vocabulary to express where I was in regards to ending my life to my husband, but I never would have put that together. So that's why I'm sharing this, because it, in part, really helped me to continue living. My professor drew a horizontal line on the board, and on the left side of the line, he put wanting to die. On the right end of the line, he put completed suicide. So we have the two farthest points on the scale of suicidality as I learned it. On one end, we have feelings of wanting it to be over, of wanting to die. And on the other end, we have completing suicide. Between those two points were things like increased feelings of hopelessness that led to suicidal thoughts and ideations. And then, Active ideation, but no desire, meaning the thoughts of suicide are increasing, they're more present, but there isn't a decision or an intent to carry out those thoughts or a plan. And that's important. Intent and plan are both crucial 
parts of understanding suicide. After that are points like active ideation with some desire to act but no specific plan. So at this point, we've decided we are going to complete a suicide and we have a plan on how to do it. I hope this is painting a picture because until I was there with an intent to act and a plan, I didn't understand. There are levels, steps, you know, this scale to suicide and understanding it better can help us advocate for ourselves if we're ever on that scale or in a position where we need advocacy and it can help us understand those in our lives who are also on the scale. The final points on the scale, you know, leading up to a complete suicide are preparations, which could be gathering materials, or it also could be changing your behavior in preparation. So for me, I didn't need a ton of materials. I was preparing and I actually, while working through my my education and my reading for this podcast, I realized, wait a minute, I actually think I was in that point. I was at that point on the scale. I was in the preparations point because I didn't need a ton of physical things, but my behavior had started to reflect my intentions. Then aborted attempt. So the individual stopped their attempt, followed by interrupted attempt, meaning someone else or something interrupted them. And then an actual attempt that wasn't Um, you may have heard successful. I know I've heard successful used, uh, but you could also use a non-fatal attempt or an attempt that did not end with the individual's death. And then lastly on the scale, of course, is completed suicide. Now I know that was a lot. My hope is that you'll go back and listen to that and maybe take some notes or, you know, listen to it a few times and work through it so it makes sense so that you can be prepared to help and understand, to advocate. I double-checked that scale on all my notes on that scale with studies and some research that I found, specifically a clinical trial done at Columbia University in 2013. I want to ensure that I'm giving you up-to-date information and that it's accurate. In my own time of suicidal intent and preparations, the scale gave me serious help. So that's my hope in giving it to you now, that it can become something like, I don't know, maybe think of it as a Band-Aid or Neosporin, that it can become something in your first aid kit for mental health that helps you help yourself or help you help someone else. Since my, you know, I'll, I'll call it my experience with suicide, my experience with suicidal ideations, it, it still baffles me, even after all the work I've done and am doing that there's still some lingering shame. Like even now as I'm recording this, as I've written and rewritten and re-recorded and practiced and run it by my husband, there's still this thought of, ah, they're going to judge me. Ah, shame, shame really might have, it might be onto something, you know, that, that I'm alone in this. This really might just be a me thing. It's difficult for me, though, and it hurts that the idea of ending my life is easier for me to wrap my head around than telling people that I had a plan to end my life. Sharing that 
being that vulnerable is so difficult. It It's like, I, I say this all the time, but it's literally what vulnerability feels like to me. It's like pulling my heart out of my chest and saying, okay, here it is. Take good care of it. When I first began speaking out about my experience, it was to my really close family members. And every single one of them that I told said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. That's like been a common theme of my life. (laughs) Hi, my name is Emily and I really have experienced a lot of shame. (laughs) But after that, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever want to go into details. I didn't ever want to share, like not even with Nathan. I didn't want to share how deeply that impacted me. The thoughts impacted me because I just kept hearing in my head the script that shame was telling me that they would judge me. They wouldn't love me the same. They wouldn't look at me the same. Uh, You know, I'd be crazy to them. I would disappoint them. And it's devastating to me that that hurt worse than the thought of ending my life. Because now the thought of ending my life really hurts. It really, really hurts, but it didn't hurt in that moment. It actually felt like a relief. Truly, it felt like a respite. People don't go down the path of ending their life by suicide because they're having a great time. It's full of so much desperation, of so much longing for things to change. So the fact that we're having these conversations is on one hand beautiful and hopeful, but on the other hand, it's so heartbreaking to me that I know I'm going to get messages and comments from people who say, hey, same. Because that's what happens every single episode. Every single episode, Shame's telling me the story. I push past it, try to ignore it, do the dang thing anyway. And I get the messages in the comments that say, hey, same, me too. And it hurts how many people contemplate no longer living and the shame around that before we change the way we think about suicide, before we change the way we judge it. My hope to my bones, my hope is that one person hears this episode and this discussion and chooses to stay. That one person hears this and feels more empowered to talk about suicide with less shame. I wish that I could say, you know, that that since choosing to stay, my life has been magical every day. Um, That would be a lie. There's been a lot of devastation, a lot of hard days. And I hear that same sentiment echoed in people that I talk to who have experienced the same thing. And the overarching theme is getting help and staying was worth it. But the overarching theme also is it's work. And I wish I could say 
that after all you've been through and all you've carried, all you've battled and persevered through, that it didn't have to keep being work. But I've learned that I get to choose what I work on. And in that choosing has brought so much fulfillment. It's brought the connection that I wanted before, the validation, the excitement, the hope. So I hope you choose to stay. And I hope that after you choose to stay, you choose to work on things that fill you up. And I hope you're supported in that. I would love to support you in that. Please stay. Who were we before shame told us we weren't enough? I asked myself that question three years ago and I haven't stopped since. You see, shame tells us that we're alone in how we feel, that it doesn't matter what we think or say or believe. Every part of us that feels unfindable, unreachable, unseeable, unlovable, has shame in it. And I believe so fervently that there is power in speaking to that shame. So join me as we reclaim the space that shame has taken up.